you for being here. We trust in you. We trust in your name. Thank you for being here with us, Lord. Thank you for dwelling with us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all tonight. Thank you for being here. Tim, good to see you. Glad you could make it. Uh, in, in your Bibles tonight, if you uh, have your Bible, we're going to be going through John 6, the last part of John 6. So it's been three weeks. This will be the third week in John 6. Um, so we'll finish it up today. And like I told you from the beginning, this is all one story. It's one story, and all the pieces of it are connected. And so there's a part of me that wanted to just talk about it all in one week, but I know 71 verses is a lot in one week. So I had to split it up. But remember, again, the, the whole connection of this piece, the whole connection of this passage is the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is the backdrop to all of this. And of course, the backdrop to the feeding of 5,000 is manna in the wilderness, the people of Israel wandering in the desert and the Lord feeding them with manna. And so Jesus, too, like his father, feeds his people in the desert. And just like the people in the desert, like their fathers of old, the Jews grumble. They grumble. They grumble in Exodus and they grumble in John. The story follows the same lines, both in Exodus and in John. And so here we are, and we've heard this whole bread of life discourse. And remember, the Jews grumble that Jesus claims to be the bread of life. That he makes a claim that actually life comes through him. In fact, they were only seeking uh, physical bread. Remember, and the Lord says, no, no, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that is eternal. And of course, he's talking about believing in him. Believing in him. Believing in him is the food that lasts forever. It is a food that will give you eternal life. And Remember, then he turns to say, it's actually my flesh that I will give, and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then you will have eternal life, and I will raise you up on the last day. And of course, there's nothing that could be more offensive to the Jews than that saying, right? To drink blood. They've been commanded not to by God, right? And they've been commanded not to, and Jesus uses this metaphor to talk about really... Uh, to, to consume Jesus, right? To bring him into your in, innermost being, right? That's that metaphor of food, right? We eat it and it goes inside of us and it, it stays in internally at a deep place. And Jesus uses that metaphor to talk about how we should consume him, how he should be a, a focal point of our life, the focal point of our life. And so he gives this great uh, passage we call the Bread of Life Discourse. In, in scholarly circles, it's called the Bread of Life Discourse. And, and so he gives this great talk about him as the Bread of Life. And then we're starting in verse 59, and it says this in verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So remember, they were on the east side of the lake for the miracle for the feeding of 5,000. The disciples were sent over in a boat by themselves to the west side of the lake, back to Capernaum. And of course, the crowds are still waiting on the east side, and they, see, they, they know Jesus is still there on the east side of the lake. And um, that's when you see Jesus walk on water, right? He escapes the crowds who want to make him king by force, right? They want to make a king of their own design rather than the king Jesus wants to be and is. 
And so Jesus walks on the water and meets his disciples. And he escapes the crowds. He escapes the crowds and goes across the lake. And he's on the west side. And in Capernaum, remember, they seek him out. All the crowds, they come across and they seek him out because they're seeking more bread. Well, we find out now in verse 59 that this whole discourse probably took place in the synagogue. When they had come to Jesus across the lake, he was probably teaching in the synagogue when they find him. And so they have had this dialogue back and forth as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And so now this week, as we finish up this passage, we get to see the response of the disciples. And we have to make a distinction there because what we read last week, what we talked about last week, was the response of the crowds. How the crowds responded to Jesus. His disciples have not responded yet. So the people who uh, at least ostensibly believe in Jesus, at least the people who claim to believe in Jesus, they haven't responded to this bread of life discourse yet from what we've read. And so what's going to happen is we're going to see two divergent responses even amongst the disciples. Remember, in the crowds, they they grumble and and they're very upset at Jesus' teaching. And even his disciples seem to have a, a, a strong reaction. They have a strong reaction. But before we get to their, their reaction, I think one thing we have to discuss is terminology, okay? In the Gospel of John, what we... Uh, actually, my mom made me aware of this, and I thought it was a good point, so I, I wanted to bring it up. Um, each of the Gospel writers, each of the biblical writers, use terminology different. They use specific words in different ways. And one thing she, my mom she mentioned to me was t- uh, talking about the apostles. And, um, and the distinction between apostles and disciples. And I thought it was a good point to bring up, especially in John, because many of the different biblical writers in the New Testament use those terms in different ways. So what we typically think of as you know, the way we've been taught the Bible growing up, we think of disciples, which are people who follow Jesus, and then there was that group, that special group called the apostles, right? That is how Luke and Acts talk about them. That's the one that's really embedded in us. Luke and Acts distinguish disciples, people who are following Jesus, and they're kind of, I don't want to say lesser, like a lower class or anything like that. That's not the point. But they just weren't as close, right? They weren't Jesus' inner circle. And the apostles are these 12 men that Jesus has taken a unique uh, role and, and place in their life where he's really let them in at the deepest level. And those 12 are called apostles in Luke and Acts. Okay? But we know that Paul, when Paul's writing his letters, he actually uses apostles differently because he refers to people as apostles who aren't even part of the twelve. For Paul, apostle means church planter, right? So he'll call, uh, uh, he calls Aquila a, uh, an apostle, right? And he calls these different people uh, apostles. But they're not part of the twelve. Well, it's because Paul uses the word differently than Luke does. And when he's talking about apostles, he's talking about church planters, Okay? All that to say, when we come to John, we have to think about how John uses terminology. And what John does is he does not delineate between the apostles and disciples. He uses the words disciples to refer to everyone who follows Jesus. And in fact, one of the first time you even hear a mention of this special group is in our passage tonight. And he refers to them simply as the twelve. The twelve. He doesn't call them apostles. He doesn't have a special term. He just refers to them as the 12. 
And so there's still that distinction, but John openly calls them disciples throughout the whole book. In fact, he even refers to himself as a disciple. Remember, at the end of the book, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? And so John is, he's not into making these categorical distinctions, but here's the one group, here's another group. He kind of keeps them all together. And, and that's important to think about because when we hear about disciples, this is not, this is everyone. This is everyone who's following Jesus. But in this passage, there's a distinction between disciples and the crowds. The crowds are these people who had followed him for bread, who were there for the miracle. That's the crowds. And in fact, later on, they're referred to as the Jews. Disciples are people who were following Jesus. Disciples are people who were um, under his instruction, right? They'd been following him to hear his teaching. That is a disciple. And so the 12 were a part of the disciples who had followed Jesus. But there was many more disciples beyond the 12 that had followed Jesus. And so we see that here. Now, now with that being said, we can, we can get into the passage. In verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples... When they heard this said, referring back to the Bread of Life discourse that we just read last week, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is a difficult statement. In your Bible, you might have, this is a hard saying. That's another translation. It's a hard <coughs> saying. What do they mean by that? Well, the word in Greek behind hard does not mean hard to understand, which is what we typically think of. It means hard to accept. Hard to accept. It's offensive, right? That's what they're saying. It is not hard to understand. We're baffled by it, Jesus. It's, that is offensive, Jesus. That is offensive to us, Lord. That's their response. This is offensive. Who can listen to it? Who could actually obey that teaching, right? It's not about who could just hear it. Who could follow that teaching, Lord? It's offensive. Who could follow it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This is an interesting uh, statement because I, I've kind of been baffled by it before, right? Jesus says, well, if you think this teaching is offensive, what if you see me ascending to where I was before? And of course, when you hear ascending, we think of the ascension, right? I don't, I've never really understood the connection there, right? If, if, if the teaching of the bread of life is offensive, then what if you see Jesus rise up to heaven? Like that would be even more offensive. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In fact, you think if Jesus were to ascend back to heaven, that that would be a... would be something that would make them believe. Um, and that's interesting. That's interesting because you, it's almost like they, they, they're juxtaposed and they don't make sense together. But what we have to think about John, and this is why we have to think about how the Bible in different books, this is why people spend their whole lives studying just sometimes a single book of the Bible, right? Because we have to think about how a specific book uses words. For John, whenever Jesus is talking about lifted up or ascended, right, that, that idea of raising up, 
What's he referring to? It's always the cross. Always the cross. The language of ascension, of going up, of being lifted up. Remember John 3? What if you see the Son of Man lifted up like the snake in the wilderness, right? The snake on the, the bronze snake on the um, staff. And so that makes sense of this passage, right? Jesus is saying, if you think this teaching is offensive, what about if you see the Messiah crucified? How offensive will that be? Because no teaching, no teaching could offend the people of Israel like the idea of a crucified Messiah could. That their Messiah who was coming to bring salvation and political freedom from Rome might be crucified? No, he's supposed to come in glory and power. And he's supposed to kick out the Romans and defeat them. How could that Messiah be crucified? Bless you. How could that Messiah be crucified? That's the greatest offense, isn't it? And so Jesus says, if my teaching causes you to, to stumble, what about when I'm crucified? How much more will that be a stumbling block to your faith? And then he goes on, Jesus goes on, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus is saying, excuse me, <clears throat> Jesus is saying that these words, this bread of life discourse, this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, right? Of accepting the crucified Messiah, that is the very nature of life. Life is only found through the words that Jesus spoke and through what those words point to, which is the actual event of his crucifixion and his resurrection, right? And Jesus says, guess what? It's the spirit that matters. The spirit is the one who gives life. And if you understand these words in fleshly terms, it will profit you not at all. No, you need to understand them from a spiritual perspective. You need to understand what Jesus is saying. You have to understand the spiritual reality of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Because if you understand it in earthly terms, in human terms, it will fail you. Only the spirit gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But... But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Remember earlier in the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus said, Unless the Father draws you, you can't come to me. Only those that the Father draws comes to me. And so here he repeats it. He knows that they don't believe. And so Jesus can say with certainty, the Father hasn't drawn you if yet. you're not believing. Yeah, yet. The <laughs> Father has not drawn you if you're not believing. And it's such a interesting moment for Jesus, right? Because these are all these people who have followed and yet it says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who believed and those who didn't. 
he says, well, only those the Father draws can come to me. Jesus is rejected by his own disciples. And he understands. He understands the spiritual reality behind it, that they were not drawn. They were not drawn yet to him. And hopefully some of these people did. We don't know. We don't know. But we hope that many of these people, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, did come to belief. But as far as this passage goes, we know what happened to their belief. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. I can imagine that this is a, a, a significant departure. This is not probably one or two people walking off. This is a significant abandonment of Jesus. And I think I, the reason I think that is because Jesus' response is to turn to the twelve and ask them a question. Right? He goes to his inner circle. And he looks at his inner circle and he says, What about you? Do you want to go to? I don't imagine for a small few people walking off, Jesus would turn to his closest friends and say that. This is a significant abandonment of Jesus. And <clears throat> what's also interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, what's also interesting is this the last we see in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, it's the last we see of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. This is how it ends. Mm -hmm. And from this point on, <clears throat> Jesus is heading in Jerusalem and towards the cross, of course. This is the last of his Galilean ministry in the book of John. And it's an abandonment of, of a massive scale. And I'm sure that I'm sure the twelve are just grieving grieving that so many people are leaving their lord their master so jesus turns to them in the 12 and he says this you do not want to go away also do you and simon peter answered him simon peter if uh, peter as we know him right peter stands in for the 12 he's kind of the representative oh thank you <clears throat> he kind of stands in as the representative of the 12 Right? He's speaking for the twelve. And he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I, I don't think Peter and the twelve understand this teaching much better than anyone else. I think they're probably just as baffled by the bread of life discourse as all the rest of the disciples. And yet Peter has caught on to what Jesus said earlier. Remember Jesus says, my words are spirit and are life. And Peter in faith says, well, to whom could we go? You're the one who has the words of life, of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe and know that this is the truth of your character. Peter believes in Jesus' word and he believes in Jesus' identity. The identity of who Jesus is. Even though 
he doesn't understand. He does not understand fully, and yet he believes. And Jesus hears that confession from Peter, and he says, Did I not myself choose you? And yet, one of you is a devil. Right? Jesus says, It was my initiative to choose you who would be the closest people to me. Right? It is the Lord's initiative in drawing people to him and, and loving them towards him, right? That, that lover kind of drawing we talked about last week. And the Lord here, Jesus, is saying, the Lord Jesus is saying, I chose these 12 and I made a good choice. I made the right choice. These are the people who will have faith even when uh, they don't understand. But yet, even one of the 12, even one of the 12 is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And that's where chapter 6 ends. It ends with this painful, broken-hearted note that Jesus is abandoned in Galilee, and even amongst the twelve there's a betrayer. And yet, there is a remnant. There is a few who truly have faith, who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his words and in who he is. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we come to a passage like that, and Jesus says, even one of the twelve is a devil. And I don't think we can ever come to a passage that has that note of warning and not examine our own faith. And we've been doing it for three weeks now. But I can't miss an opportunity where the scripture says, examine your heart, to not examine it. We have to. We have to talk about it. Because this passage has set up two people to typify the response to Jesus in his disciples. I want to reiterate that. Two different responses to Jesus. Not of the world. Two different responses in his disciples. They're all called disciples. It's not the crowds we're talking about. We know they hate Jesus. We know they were just looking for bread. We knew that two weeks ago. This is his disciples. And there are disciples who do not believe and will walk away. And, and this passage gives a kind of an... A, a figure that stands up as kind of the example of that. And, and for those who walk away, who's the example? Well, of course, it's Judas. Judas is the example of all those who would not truly believe and yet would be around, right? They'd be around. They'd be around church. They'd be around the ministry. They'd do all the right things and say all the right things and, and maybe even, you know, have the right theology, and yet not believe. In fact, maybe even betray. And of course, then the other side of that is you have the faithful, the twelve. And who's the example? Who's the epitome of that in this passage? It's Peter. Peter, who does not understand and yet believes. Yet believes in what Jesus has said and is willing to trust. And I think we all... <clears throat> 
have to examine our own hearts. And if you feel a warning tonight, if you feel a warning in your heart to say, man, I, I should examine my heart, I, I think that shows you're a Peter. Because the truth is the Judas never looks at their own heart. The Judas never feels a twinge of fear that they might not be in, right? I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I'm not asking you to do any of that. I'm saying examine your heart as we're called to do over and over again to follow in the footsteps and follow the path of Jesus. And we all have to do that. We all have to be warned. We have to be reminded. The scripture warns us again and again. Why? So that the warning might take effect in our hearts. That we might be warned and, and remind ourselves, yeah, stay on the narrow path. Follow Jesus. And we have to do that. We have to do that. Because if we don't, we might be those disciples who walk away. We might be those disciples who maybe, as Jesus, it says, Jesus knew who believed. We might be those disciples who didn't really believe. And I think we have to examine our hearts. Examine our hearts for that. Be warned tonight. Christians, be warned tonight. See, faith, just like Peter showed us tonight, faith is believing and trusting even when it doesn't make sense. And that's something we have to remember because when, when things get hard, when things stop making sense, when, when the Lord tells us a hard teaching or something we don't want to hear, if your response is to walk away, that's a Judas response. That's a Judas response. That's not how Peter responds. That's not how the faithful responds. Because the faithful believe and trust even when it doesn't make sense. And they've been that way from the beginning. Remember Genesis 22, right? Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and go up on Mount Moriah and offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. Moses, go back to Egypt where you murdered someone. Go confront Pharaoh, a man who definitely wants you dead. And on and on and on down the list. Faith is to trust even when we don't understand. And we see it from the very beginning. On down the halls of faith from the beginning of humanity until now, that the faithful believe and trust even when it doesn't make sense. And so Jesus gives this teaching. That is a hard teaching. Here's the thing. The disciples were not wrong about that. Even the ones who walked away were not wrong. This is a hard teaching. It's offensive. Like Paul says, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The disciples were right. It is an offensive teaching. And yet, we trust the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense. And Peter does that. And Judas doesn't, even though he hangs around. He's not like the other disciples who walk away. He still hangs around, but he doesn't believe. We've got to examine our own hearts and see if we're Peter or Judas. 
And God, I examine our hearts and see if we're Peter or Judas. I pray we're all Peters tonight. I pray if, if you've never had a moment where the Lord is offering you a hard teaching or where the Lord is uh, testing you, where you feel a test that, it, man, it's just hard. Life is hard. You're struggling. You're suffering. If you've never experienced that, well, one, you will. <laughs> it's inevitable. That's the condition of humanity. But also, also, believe and trust. That's my encouragement. If you're in that situation tonight, or if you are three weeks from now and you remember back to this, this teaching, I, I pray that that will be what you remember. Believe and trust, even when it doesn't make sense. That's the Peter kind of faith from this passage. That's the kind of faith we have to have. And especially in this world, especially in this world where we have to have all our, our T's crossed and our I's dotted and everything has to fit in the box right perfectly and if it doesn't, we don't want to be a part of it. That's not faith. Faith is trusting when it doesn't make sense. And I pray that for each of you tonight. Let me close. Let me bless you tonight. Lord Jesus, I pray mm. for every person here, would you instill a Peter-like faith in them? And for those who have that Peter-like faith, man, would you make it deeper? Would, Lord, would you just make it deeper in them that they would uh, just excel at faith? That faith would be the core of who they are that they would trust and believe in you even when it doesn't make sense to them, mm. when, when their world has gone upside down, would they still believe and trust and know that you are with them? Would they make their complaint known to you? Would they pour out their hearts to you in, in real uh, emotion, the reality of what they're feeling? I pray they would do all those things, but that at the end of that, they would still believe and trust and have faith that you are the God of the universe, that you are working it out, and that Jesus, no matter what situation comes, even physical death, like Jesus says in the Bread of Life discourse, we won't taste death. Because we believe we go from this life to a new life beyond. And we, as believers, those who believe, do not even have to taste death, is what John 6 says. I pray we would be emboldened by that. That we'd be emboldened to give our testimonies, to give our lives to people, to love them, to bless them, to bring them to you. Just like you did, Father, when you sent your Son to draw people to you. So I pray all these things in your name, Jesus, and by your Spirit's power. Bless these people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.